Let's get ready to study God's Word. to one and all. Welcome to another episode of Rightly Divide the Word of Truth. This is Andrew S. Baker, and it's time for another devotional study. Please be sure to visit us at biblestudy.asbzone.com, where you can find links to our previous episodes and various Bible study resources. Let's have a word of prayer before we get into our study. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of studying your word. We thank you for the opportunity to share this with others. We pray that you'll help us, that we will rightly divide your words of truth. Help us as we finish up this series, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's study is entitled, Unto the Church of Laodicea. And our verse That's going to get us started here is the first verse of the message to the Laodiceans. And we find it in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. It says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Okay, let's tackle this. We are on the last of the seven churches, the last of the messages to the seven churches as recorded in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And we want to remind you that if you have not yet listened to any of the others, that you should start from the beginning so that you get all of the necessary context. Now, before we get into today's lesson, I shouldn't say before, as, as a part of going into the lesson, I would like to make mention of something. The church to the Laodiceans, this message is seen from the date of 1888 to the present. In fact, let me go over the dates right now first message was to Ephesus. It represented the apostolic church. It was from approximately 31 AD to about 100 AD. Smyrna, the persecuted church, was from 100 AD to 313 AD. Pergamos, the compromising church, was from 313 AD to 538 AD. And that 538 is significant because it marks the beginning of the papacy. Thyatira, the dead church, is shown to be from 538 AD to 1798 AD, which is essentially the 1260 years of the the papal reign. Sardis, the reformed churches, is listed as 1798 to 1844, and 1798 is, you know, the end of the 
papal supremacy. And this is that time where the churches of the Reformation should have flourished, but there was there was still, they did not fully come out of darkness during that time. The Church of Philadelphia, the Church of Brotherly Love, the Church of the Awakening, uh, is listed as 1844 to 1888. Now, not every chart that you see is going to use exactly the same times. I've seen charts use from about 1831, 1833 to 1844 for the Philadelphia Church. And that idea is that this was the time of, of the churches coming together, the awakening, the preparing for the, for the second coming as they understood it. But the truth is that that spirit of awakening lasted past the Great Disappointment, and the promise to the Philadelphia Church makes a little bit more sense if you put it past that time. But it's it's that general vicinity of time, right? 1844 to 1888, Church of the Awakening, when Christ had set an open door before them. It makes a lot more sense when you think of the open door as the door to the most holy place by faith. Okay. Laodicea. This is the last church. This is the seventh church. This is the lukewarm church. This is listed as 1888 to the present. Again, I've seen some people put the date from 1844 to the present, but there was a certain amount of on fire in the 1844 time period, and then immediately following that. It makes more sense that essentially a generation passed, 40 years, right? So from the 1844 time period, we have 1888, where the church settled into this state where they felt like they knew everything. Laodicea means judging or judgment, judging of the people. You can look at that judgment in several ways. The most important way is the investigative judgment where Christ entered into the most holy place in 1844 and is currently judging the saints, those that are alive and profess his name. Judging the people. Laodicea was the church that felt that it was on par, that it had everything, that it didn't need anything but it didn't recognize its spiritual condition, and therefore Christ had to give it some instruction. So we're going to look at this passage now. This is neither the longest nor the shortest passage, but there are some important things about the message to the church of the Laodiceans. One is that it contains no commendation. Christ doesn't say anything particularly good about the church. Let's start at verse 14 of Revelation 3. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold, nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm 
and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. Spew thee out of my mouth, not spit. I've seen people translated to spit. No, not spit, vomit. It's almost involuntary. It's bleh. Okay. I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. Nothing good is said there. The Lord says, look, if you were cold, if you were just not paying attention to me, opposed to the gospel, or you were hot, you were on fire for me, these would be conditions I could work with. But to be lukewarm is a terrible condition. It's not a good taste, right? Room temperature water, most people don't like drinking that. Now, let's go back to verse 14 for a second. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the so be it. Christ is identifying himself as he did in each of the letters to each of the churches in a special way that deals, that addresses, that focuses on the crisis that each party is facing. These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Christ rightly represents his Father. He does not provide a hypocritical witness. He does not bear false witness. The beginning of the creation of God. Now, a lot of people look at that passage and they conclude that Christ was a created being, a created entity, and that he was the first one that Christ, that God the Father created. There are denominations that feel that God created Christ and then Christ created everything else. But the beginning of the creation of God means the author, the instigator, the one who set things in motion, the one who began that work, not who was the first product of that work. Okay. Verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Because of that, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Very interesting passage here, verse 18. Why is it that elements of the salvation experience are said to be requiring purchase? The gospel is free, is it not? Salvation is free, is it not? Well, it's free to us, but we should bear in mind that there is a cost associated with it, significant cost. Christ paid a cost. Heaven paid a cost for our salvation. So as in the parable with the pearl of great price and the, the field that the worker went out to purchase, as in both of those cases, salvation is seen as something that should be pursued earnestly 
as though you would sell everything you had to buy it. That's the context in which Christ is speaking to us, that we should give up something to get this thing. Right? Whenever you see something being put forth as a sale, you give up something to get something of equal or greater value. And in this case, what we're getting is always going to be of greater value than what we're giving up. So here, God is asking us to put earnest effort and focus and attention into obtaining the robe of Christ's righteousness, the grace of God, discernment. We need to pursue these as though we could purchase them. Verse 19, Christ reassures us, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Right? So he's telling us, yes, this message sounds harsh. It is a, a message of rebuke because you are in error. But I only bother to do this to those that I love. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't waste the time. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Verse 20, Christ is pleading with us. He is standing at the door of our hearts and knocking to let us come to let us open up to him so he can come in and fellowship with us. Okay? Verse 22, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Christ is awaiting his throne. If you look at Matthew 25, you'll see that at the second coming, Christ is granted a kingdom. He's going to take control of his kingdom. We see that with a number of parables. Christ is going to inherit his kingdom. We see in Revelation that he takes off the garments of the priesthood and puts on the garments of vengeance and he comes forward. And so when he gains his throne, he's promising us to be co-rulers with him. Right now, he is sharing his father's throne. And he has a throne of his own that's going to come into play right at the second coming. And at that time, we will then be co-laborers together with him. At that time, we will be co-heirs of his kingdom, just as he is currently ruling with his father's kingdom. There's something interesting about how the churches are addressed uh, each time. The English translation of a passage doesn't always show you the underlying nuances of the Greek or the Hebrew, Greek for the New Testament, Hebrew or Aramaic for the Old. So it's important to look at how things are done to get a glimpse of what differences there might be and if it has any practical implication. 
Revelation 2.1 says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Okay? If you look at it in the, in the concordance, you'll notice that not all of the words have representation in the Greek. So, for instance, in Revelation 2.1, Church of Ephesus only has a Greek, a Greek corresponding word for church and Ephesus, not for of. In Revelation 2, verse 8, again, church in Smyrna, church and Smyrna have a, a corresponding Greek word, but in does not have a corresponding Greek word in Revelation 2.8, supplied. All right? And notice that it was of in one verse and in in another verse, because those words can be used interchangeably in English. Revelation 2.12, it says, Church in Pergamos. All three of the words have a Greek corresponding Greek word. Church in Pergamos. Revelation 2.18, church in Thyatira. All three of the words have a corresponding Greek word. Revelation 3.1, church in Sardis. All three of the words are there. Church in Philadelphia. All three of the words are there in the Greek. But the Laodiceans have a slightly different wording. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Church and Laodiceans have their corresponding Greek word, but none of the ofs in the first sentence do. Okay? Why is there such discrepancy in these few sentences? I think it's just for us to pay attention. If there's a deeper lesson, I haven't seen it yet. But I think it's just for us to pay attention because God allowed John to write it of his own accord. And even those who were, even those who were translating the books, they did not do it. I, I have to be careful. I, I want to say they didn't use the same word consistently. That's what I want to say. I don't want to say they didn't do it consistently because I'm not casting judgment on everything they did in the translation. But in terms of the English, they did not consistently translate the words into English phrases in exactly the same way as the previous verses. They used different phrases. So what we see here, as we look at it, the lukewarm church, the church of the time of judgment, right? The church that is being judged, the church that is operating in the time of the judgment. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. These are all aspects of judgment that we need to keep our eye on. That church thinks that everything is fine and doesn't realize that it has a problem. And the Lord is constantly giving out information and signs and indications that all is not well and needs to be made well. Okay. Christ is promising us that if we'll open the door to him, he will come into us. I want to go over 
Christ's identification to his church. He is the amen, the so be it, the message of God. And we live in a time where we don't focus cleanly on the messages of God. He is the faithful and true witness. And we live in a time of sophisticated reasoning where we don't accept the more sure word of prophecy. He is also the beginning of the creation of God. And I emphasized earlier that this doesn't indicate that he is a created being, but rather it shows him to be the author of creation. But more importantly than that, or maybe I should say in conjunction with that, this identification by Christ emphasizes that the creation, the literal six-day creation that the earth was created under, that is truth, not evolution, not any kind of other weird configuration, not even intelligent design. I understand that we're trying to emphasize that someone designed the universe and it's not just accidental. But at the same time, we know who the designer is. It's not just an arbitrary, someone must have done it. We know that God created the heaven and the earth. And we need to stand fast on that. We need to recognize that creation is a core fundamental belief a core belief in the authority of God. And because he can make it, he can remake it. There's so many promises that are tied up in Christ's creative ability. We need to accept that. Revelation 3.14 says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your goodness and your love. We thank you for your messages to the seven churches. Help us to see in this message, especially in the time that we live, that it applies to us and our churches in a literal sense, that it applies to us in a spiritual sense where we may or may not be paying attention to all that is going on around us, but thinking that everything is okay. We ask you to forgive us of our sins, Lord, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Be with all of our church families. We pray that you will help us to rightly divide your words of truth as we study on our own. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. You can reach us via email at biblequestions at asbzone.com. We look forward to hearing from you, whether you have questions, comments, suggestions, or concerns. We also recommend that you check out the True Wisdom podcast, where Robert and I discuss Bible stories and topics together. Both of these podcasts can be found on over a dozen platforms, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pandora, Amazon Music, and much more. Please remember our ministries in your prayers. Until we meet again next time, may God richly bless you as you prayerfully study and share His Holy Word.